a mother that, that she's about to give birth when that water breaks. And so there's this picture of birth that's physical in nature and, and yet spiritual in nature, and we're born by water and wind. And that, that is to show us that this new birth is actually life-giving. It's a good thing, but it's also powerful. Because if you think, like, where do water and wind go together the most? Thunderstorm. Where do wind and water run together? They're usually in violent, messy things. You see, new birth will cost you. It is powerful. It's more like a storm. There will be wind damage. There will be water damage. There will be flooding. And yet, in some miraculous way, it's life-giving. Now, we know this because we live in a, in a part of the world that's more familiar with agriculture, right? Our culture is not completely divorced from agriculture. And so when Jesus gives agricultural or agrarian terms, like in parables and otherwise, we can kind of get the picture. Not everyone can. But you know this. The farmer knows this. The farmer stops and asks God for rain, knowing that on a regular basis that rain comes with wind that can destroy and even hail that can wipe out. That's the picture here. But the farmer also knows the alternative. Drought. Death. The second thing we see is that new birth is completely supernatural in this picture of water and wind. Now this is tough for some of us, and we're jumping right into the deepest waters of John, right? Remember I told you how John uses simple language but expresses deep and ineffable truths, right? So it's like, it's like the ocean, and it's got shallow places where children can wade in safely, but there are deep places where if you try to go to the bottom, you will die. This is one of those things, and so, hey, welcome, we are Connection Church, all right? Uh, and what we find here is if this is supernatural, you can't make yourself a Christian. You can't do it. You don't have the power for it. You don't have the ability. And every single effort that you've put towards that, you will find to be incredibly just, man, it's depressing. The phrase I'm thinking is, it's life-sucking. Like it just draws the energy out of you. It zaps you. You have nothing left. When you do that, it, you will pour yourself into something and then realize you have no power to do it. And to that, I say, congratulations. When you come to that reality, you're being born again. That deep and, I mean, you know this, that, that deep and awful sadness in despair, right? I can't fix this. I can't make this better. I keep trying and I can't. Don't, don't miss this. We, we share this on a regular basis. A mentor of mine put this in these terms that when you hit rock bottom and amazing things happen, you realize there is a rock at the bottom. And when your eyes are open to your inability to be good and to do good, you're being born again. There's a subtle and powerful death shadow that Jesus leads us through. But it only comes when we stop trusting in ourselves. It's a supernatural thing. And now this provokes, doesn't it? Doesn't it provoke us? The, the Old Testament will put it in terms like our attempts to be righteous are but filthy, disposable rags. They're meant to be thrown away. It provokes us, doesn't it? Don't, don't you even now as a good Western American think, but I'm better than that. 
I have accomplished many things. I'm better than you're saying that I am. And, and we find out the supernatural nature of this birth just provokes and divides and says no. But for the rest of us who have waded through our own self-righteousness that maybe you're being provoked out of, our hearts leap for joy when we say this. There's a, a mystery. There's something m- mysterious And this challenges a religious person. So on one hand, if you're a highly self-righteous religious person, if I stand here and and I push back and I say, are you really a Christian? If your faith is in yourself and you find yourself like Nicodemus, seeing Jesus as a good teacher who helps you do the thing that needs to be done, then I really tick you off, don't I? Are you really a Christian? And if you're kind of a self-righteous person, that bothers you, right? You're like, well, who is he? How, how, who is he to question who I am and, and my merits as a, as a Christian? Doesn't he know who I am? It, it, it provokes you. But those of us who have been born again, those of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and by some supernatural means have been recipients of this unmerited favor for us in Christ. If I come to you and I say, are you really a Christian? You go, I know. Isn't that, I was wondering that too. Can it be that I am a Christian? Can it be that when the Apostle Paul and the rest of the New Testament speaks to saints, they're talking about me? And we marvel. We're not offended. Even now, if you find yourself going like, is this guy really a Christian? I know! Apart from God's grace and apart from supernatural means, that's impossible. Have you met you? Apart from God's supernatural work, and this is the interesting thing, that while it might provoke you and rip that self-righteousness, that, that sense of self-worship, or the, self, the sense of a self-kingdom, as, as, as Jesus rips that out of your hand, he replaces it with a great joy. And the embodiment of the Old Testament and even New Testament axiom, the Lord opposes the proud. He opposes you and provokes you because you need it and he loves you and because he draws near to the humble. Supernatural. The way I would ask it this way is like, is there a mysterious thing that take, that's taken hold of you? Now, I encouraged you last week. This is pretty awesome. This is happening in the life of our church. Uh, and I, I don't know why. Like, I, I don't, why? I don't know. I don't know. This is happening. People are experiencing this. Some of you in this room, you're not the same person. Supernatural things have brought your eyes to be open to see Jesus for who it is. And I would just ask you, is there a mysterious thing that's taken hold of you that you can't really explain? Like, why would you do that? For some of you, it's like this, right? I don't know if you experienced this. I know I experienced this. When, 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 when God started to open my eyes to who he was, I started doing crazy things. I don't, if, you're, if you're not a believer, this will sound strange, but I started reading the Bible. Like, and some of you are there right now. You're like, I mean, some of you are talking about the Bible, and you're like, oh, this is great. I want this. Apart from the work of Christ, there's no reason I would do that. And there's no reason you would do that. But some of you are experiencing this, right? And you're like, I, I, I want to, for some reason I want to read it. For some reason I want to hear from God. I don't know why, but I, for some reason want to hear from God. I found out he's made a way that I could actually commune with him. He hears my prayers and I hear his voice. This is crazy. Are you a mystery to other people? Are there things going on in your life that just could not be explained? 
Now, I ask that because some of you realize how this will cost, right? Remember the picture? Remember the picture of a thunderstorm bringing both destruction and life? For some of you, this has cost you. Maybe even right now, it's costing your relationships, friendships, and maybe even costing you your actual family. It's supernatural, it's mysterious. And apart from God's grace, it can't be explained. Are you a mystery? Because if everything in your life can be explained perfectly, I want to warn you, Jesus says you might not actually be seeing God's kingdom. If there's a perfect and explainable reason for all the decisions you've made, all the things you do, the people you date, people you want to marry, if there's a perfectly natural explanation for all the things in your life, would you just stop for a minute and be provoked to the depths of your core? Are you really a Christian? Like, and however mad you are at me at that, pour gas on that and look right past these words to Jesus. Because unless there's this inexplicable, mysterious, strange thing going on in your life, it's like wind and it's kind of, kind of wrecking stuff. It's like hail. It's kind of smashing some stuff up. And yet it's somehow so incredibly life-giving. It's deliverance from drought. Unless you're born of this miraculous wind and water, you don't get it. He picks this up even. Verse 9 says, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you not the teacher of Israel? Now, this is interesting. Uh, you have maybe heard me say and other people say there are no such things, uh, there's no such thing as a bad question. Jesus disagrees, right? And it's, it's one of those, like, uh, it's one of those little, little, you know, axioms we try to believe to make ourselves feel better, right? Like sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? I've never actually heard anyone say that. Uh, because it's not really true, right? And everyone who's, who does say that, they immediately go away and weep. Like, they hurt, I mean, right? But it's still like a thing we would say. It's kind of like there's no such thing as a bad question. Because he asked this question, hey, how can this be? I don't understand Jesus. And Jesus' answer is like, you don't get this? You're a teacher in Israel? Now he, and he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was one of the teaching elite. He would have been the one that understood the Old Testament, known that, that this is actually a fulfillment of the prophet Ezekiel. We see this in verse 25. Ezekiel tells us that I will sprinkle clean water on you. Right? Hear the language of water. Okay? Get, get it? Clear one. Childlike pictures here. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will, or I will put within you. Get it? There's the language of spirit. This is not new. Jesus is not making up something. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules, you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people. And I will be your God. And Jesus is kind of like, shouldn't you know this? Like when I tell you that the only way to be the people of God, and for God to be the God of this people, is if he miraculously grants us some cleansing over it. We saw that, I, did you catch the, the cleansing was from idols? 
The cleansing of sin and the, the new thing that he, that he bears in us, a new spirit, a new heart. Right? You just catch this is not new. And so Jesus is like, that's a really bad question. Shouldn't you be the one that answers it? You're asking me how this can be, how this can be, and, like, and you clearly have missed it. Apparently Nicodemus had not thought of the Old Testament passage like this in Ezekiel this way. In fact, he probably for years taught other people that the conditions by which you enter God's kingdom and that you are his people, he is your God and you are his people, are in terms of your obedience. Have devotion to God. Obey God's command. Learn and follow the Torah. Be in happy submission to his will. But here he faces the condition that evidently he had either not ever heard expressed or what I would think is more likely he was still dead in his trespasses, not seeing Jesus for who he was. The absolute requirement to being God's people is birth from above. He was likely too confident in the quality of his own obedience to think he needed much repentance, let alone to have his whole life cleaned and to have his whole heart transplanted and then to be born again. But he seems to have a point to make here, and Jesus wants to see this. If we don't trust in this elementary point of entry into God's kingdom, then what use is it to go on explaining the details of this new kingdom? If you don't understand the elementary principle that this is a miracle, a miracle, it defies explanation. How does he say that? He says, look, look you don't get this? Look, I'm speaking of what I know here. We, maybe speaking of his disciples here, we're speaking about something here that we know, and we're bearing witness to what we've seen, right? We've seen this happen. We've seen God by supernatural means do amazing things. We can't really explain. But if I'm telling you about earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? Right, so if I tell you about the fruit of this thing in earthly terms, and he just did this, like a picture of, a picture of wind, right? A picture of water, a picture of birth. If, if you don't get this in earthly terms, if you don't see this even here, in, in an earthly way, in that it will take place here on earth when people are born again, then what use is it for me to tell you about heavenly, eternal things? He seems to say that Jesus' teaching here on new birth is elementary. Well, don't miss this. This is why this ought to be so provocative. If you don't regularly experience the Spirit's wind stirring things up, like really rustling things up in your own life, stop seeking for deeper and greater wisdom. You, you need to go back to kindergarten, the ABCs of being called by God, trusting in Christ's finished work. Don't miss this. The practical application of this particular point he's making, I have... I see emergent conversations on a weekly basis with some of you in this room and just about everyone I get a chance to talk to. People want to ask deep existential things like, where, like, should I take this job? Where should I live? What should I do? Should I date this person? Probably shouldn't be dating at all, maybe. I don't know. This is just what I usually say. But like, like, like if you don't know, then you're a mess. Ah. Back over here. All right. People ask questions about the practical nature of their life. Should I go here, live here, do this thing, do that thing? And I'm like, if your life isn't marked by overwhelming joy for what God has poured out for you in Jesus Christ, such that you have new life, 
that you're now nurturing and feeding along, then it doesn't matter what you do next. It doesn't matter. You'll take your self-righteous, selfish, self-destructive self into every job, relationship, family, or environment that you encounter. Go back. If your life isn't marked by this radically inexplicable, unexplainable joy, then it doesn't matter where you go to destroy things. You're going to go and be destructive anyway. But, but friend, if, if, if you're thinking like now, now that I have new life, I have new vision, and my days are not marked in the way that the rest of the world marks days, my days are eternal in nature, I have a family, an inheritance, a blessing that has no end, now how do I invest it, what do I do with it, now you're on the right track. Jesus is saying, if, look, if you don't get the basics of this, the basics of this, then it really doesn't matter. Stop tricking yourself into thinking you're some sort of an, an advanced state here. And I say that because Nicodemus was. He was, he was as, I mean, he's more educated and intelligent and powerful than any of us in this room will ever be. And he missed it. And Jesus says, look, if you don't get the first thing, it doesn't matter about the rest. If you don't get this testimony about supernatural birth that I'm bringing, it doesn't matter. How does he explain it then? I tell you these heavenly things. No one has ascended into heaven. He's talking about the heavenly nature of Jesus. We saw this in chapter 1. Jesus is divine and, and no one has access to heaven or back and forth and except for the ones that has, the one has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Again, this is language right out of the book of Daniel that God is going to be with us and for us in human form. It's going to return in this powerful way. And Jesus is like, I am this one. He refers to himself on a regular basis. And then he makes a callback. And I would argue to you a challenge to your Old Testament knowledge. And he makes a callback to Numbers 21. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, that's the most popular, most well-known, uh, most reg regularly memorized verse of the Bible. But I, and I don't really want to dig into that necessarily. I want to give you the context, context for that thing to come to life. So if you want to, you can turn with me to Numbers 21. Right, right at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And if you want to, you can follow me there to Numbers 21. If not, you can just mark it. But I want you to see this is Jesus knows the Scripture, knows that Nicodemus would know the Scripture, and begins to expound upon the thing that God is doing in the Old Testament that points towards him. He does it all the time. Beginning in verse 4 of Numbers chapter 21, we see this amazing thing that God does for his people. Pretty profound and he explains it from Mount Hor. They set out by the way to the Red Sea. So they've just been set free from bondage, generational bondage, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Man, isn't that the way that people work? Isn't it like, if you give people more options, they become more angry? Like, I don't know if you remember, there was a day when you could just go buy jeans, and there were just like, you would just go buy jeans. There's, there was one. There was like one kind of jean. And like, that's. Did you go buy? Yeah, I went to. I got those things. That's what I got. That used to be the way almost everything was. You just go. Oh, that's the thing you get. 
And along comes this kind of capitalistic, consumeristic belief that, you know what, we were, our joy will be increased, our satisfaction will be increased if we have more options. More freedom means more joy. And we have found, like we're, I don't know, like most of us in this room, if you're like, you know, basically, this is all of us, if you're born since 1940, like we're, this, we're the guinea pigs for this experiment, right? Like if we give people more options, they'll be more satisfied. And what we're finding is, that we are the most like discontented, angry, self-centered, and entitled generation I think the world has ever known. Now, Solomon would push back on that. It's not fair to say that you know, the old days were better than that. That's not what I mean by that. But the effects of this are visible. And this is what happens. I'll be transparent. Whenever you see, I don't know, a six or an eight-year-old cry because they don't know what shoes they want to wear because they have so many choices oh this gets real they just got delivered out of bondage they just have been given and and god was every single day dropping manna out of the sky so they wouldn't starve to death in the wilderness and what <laughs> oh Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? I'm just going to die. I'm never going right? to. Oh. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And that attitude caused them to rebel against God and rebel against Moses. And this is what God ha- does when you don't trust in God's provision. Verse 6, it says, And the Lord sent fiery serpents, literally, fiery and that they were venomous but there's something about their venom that was fiery and burned people before it killed them the lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of israel died and the people came to moses and said we have sinned notice that like the judgment that was pronounced on their rebellion once it was pointed out to them they were like you're right god we heal us save us and they said and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. Or excuse me, they, they, back, and, the Lord, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may, or excuse me, that he would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed on behalf of the people, right? He intercedes for the people, <coughs> Jesus, okay? And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, right? The same thing, like a and set it on a pole, and everyone who was bitten when he sees it shall live. And so Moses made a bronze fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So don't miss the context of the most popular verse the Bible has. The context of this verse is actually an application of an Old Testament passage that pointed to its fulfillment in Christ. And so there was a a group of people who, because they were entitled and self-centered, rebelled against God, and then in, in in their rebellion, God allowed destruction to come on them, and stuff starts falling apart. And out of their out of the depths of their sorrow, they all they do is they simply look up to this. Don't don't miss this. The the thing that was killing them proved and it's perfected in supernatural form to be the thing that delivered them the thing that was killing them snake and it's perfected 
crafted form through supernatural power was the means of their deliverance. This is so important for us. We look at that and we think, if this is Jesus, right? What's the thing that's, what's your, what's your biggest problem? What's the thing that's killing you? And unfortunately, it's you. It's you. Your very humanity, your very existence is opposed to God. Your, your first your first cries to your mom were me, me, worship me, meet my needs, drop what you're doing and cater to me, right? And then for the next few years, me, I want mine. Like that's you, that's me. And our biggest problem is our humanity. And isn't it amazing that this human form and it's perfected in supernatural means through Jesus is the way in which we are delivered from the problem we have to begin with. We look to the perfected supernatural form of our problem and God delivers us. This is what's going on. These people were dying. They weren't going to make it. And in their death throes, they look to a solution. I love this. All they had to do is to look to the snake. That's a a beautiful little piece of God's grace there. Like for those that maybe were weak or sick or lame or even under like feeling the consequences of the snake bite. Had he said, crawl to this, right? Touch this, get your hands on this. There would have been people under the penalty and the consequences of these snakes that wouldn't have been able to make it. But so that, not just the strong, not just the able, but the weak and those that couldn't even pull themselves up. All they had to do in their weakness was just look, just look. And every single one, I love that. So he came uh, and, and so he, that anyone who would look at the bronze serpent would then live. You just look. He's lifted up. And the purpose we see is in verse 15. This is Jesus explaining this. Just as Moses lifted up, now that word lifted up is almost always the language of, exaltin, of, ex, of exaltation, of being exalted, like lifted up like a king or like something glorious, right? Like Rudy winning the, you know, or doing the great thing and the team lifts him up or carries the coach off on, on their shoulder. Lift, that's, that's the picture of glory and exaltation when you see this phrase. But John uses this word differently. And we'll see for the rest of his gospel, when he uses the words lifted up, he's almost always talking about not just the, the lifting up and exaltation of Jesus and his glory, but he's talking about the cross. The snake was poached, or excuse me, like perched up on top of a pole, lifted up. So must, verse 14, the Son of Man be lifted up. In order that, so that, here's the result, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And your weakness and your frailty won't be able to fix this, but if you look to him, if you look to Jesus, he'll heal you. And then John interjects. Now some of your Bibles may have this next phrase in red as if Jesus would have said it. Um, I, I, I'm going to push back. I don't think that's the case. I think John starts to, to summarize this for the next several verses. I think Jesus stops talking. That's neither here nor there, but it is, I mean, Jesus could have said this. It just, the language doesn't add up. It isn't likely that Jesus would have said it this way, but John summarizes Jesus and what he just said, that if you will look to the Son of Man, like those who are dying in the wilderness looked up to the serpent, you will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The only thing I'll say about that verse is that word so is really important. Uh, We often translate that word so to mean like so much, but it isn't. The the word there is thus. And so instead of saying for God, we, we tend to think that means 
God loved the world so much. And that isn't the point of the story. At all. Instead, it would be better to say, thus, or this is how God loved the world. That's important. It's, it's not a statement of degree, even though there are places in the New Testament where that is the case. Right? How the breadth and the depth, and right? This fullness of God's love. It's not. But that's not what's being said here. He's saying, this is the way that God has loved the world. Like a serpent being held for a bunch of people dying in the wilderness. That's how God loved the world. This is the way that God loves the world. The way I talk about this on a regular basis, I love you, I want you to know that. I love you and I want what's best for each and every one of you. And even if somebody I don't know that well, I love you because you're here and I want to be faithful to that. But, but I also love my daughters. Um, I had, for example, like a situation where you were out there on 10th Street in traffic, and you were there in traffic facing certain doom and death like these people wandering in the wilderness were dying, and you were out there in that traffic, and my daughter was standing there next to you. This is how I would love you. I would save my daughter. It's not because I don't love you. I do love you. I just don't love you like that. And I would take her, because that's how I love her. Don't miss the radical nature of this verse. When God looked down at you and me and our poisoned, dying selves, and he had the opportunity to either let you take the brunt and full measure of what you deserved, or to let his innocent and perfect son take the full brunt and measure of what you deserved, he chose to save you. This is how God loves the world. Just stop for a minute. Go back to that scenario. You're in traffic. You're about to die. My daughter's standing there next to you, and I run right past her, and I grab you and pull you out of the way, and and, and she dies in your place. She dies, and you get saved. What does that do to our relationship? What do you think of me as a father even? You think, this guy's insane. Does he even understand what it means to be a father? Does he even get it? And yet that, that is the mystery that's declared here. That God in his his mercy loves the world like this. Like this. Verse 17, for God did not send send his son into the world to condemn the world. Now, he does come as a judge. We see this several chapters later, but he doesn't come for that purpose. Instead, he came in order that the world might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. And this is a profound truth here. We find out that God is committed to truth and justice in a way that is like difficult for us to understand. And we see love and justice and condemnation and wrath all at one, right? Now, we talk about this on a regular basis. Again, welcome to the deep end of the pool. Uh, but but this, this is difficult for us to begin to understand. We, we like the thought of love and we like the thought of wrath. We don't do them well because we are not holy. And this is important for us because many of you were raised in a context where God is all loving. You were raised in a country where God is all loving. And even if they didn't believe in God, it's like, whatever, do whatever you want. And God has never told you no. Ever. God has only told you yes. 
And then some of you were raised in a context, and again, these people probably, maybe people would call themselves Christians, but you were raised with people who, in which God was raised up and believed that he was all wrathful, he was all just. And you're sitting in a spot now where you feel like God has never told you yes. God's after you to rob you of joy. And I want you to understand God's love and his anger work together. In fact, if you're not angry when somebody hurts the thing you love, you don't really love it. You're just using it for your own pleasure. Love and wrath work together. They have to. Otherwise, they don't, they don't work at all. But we're broken. We're not holy. And so when we think in terms of anger, did you catch this? There's, there's wrath and there's condemnation for people who do not receive Jesus, and we don't like that. Because we think that if God loves the world, then everybody's going to be a recipient of that. And that's not the case. You see, God's love is holy. God's love is perfect. God's love is just. He does not love that which is evil. can't stand at sight. And I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss the picture of God painted here. Because for those of you who were maybe raised in a context where God is all loving and God's never told you no, you're spoiled. You're self-absorbed. You're self-indulgent. And as a result, you know what happens. You feel orphaned. God never loved me or no one loved me enough to like fix this or to point me in the right direction. But then for the rest of you, maybe on this other side where you're surrounded by people who only ever told you that you know, God is wrath and God is, God is anger and God is just, God has only ever told you no, you know what this feels like. You're like an abused child. You're terrified. Don't miss this. Those people worshipped an idol and they passed it on. Thanks be to God that at the cross we see both God's love and his wrath. You want to know for sure if God loves you? You look at the cross. You want to know for sure if God hates evil and he's going to bring justice? Look at the cross. If you forget that God is for you and has mercy and love for you, you look at the cross. If you forget that God has hate and wrath towards that which is evil and opposes his people, you look at the cross. No one took grace more seriously. No one took justice and sin more seriously than Jesus on the cross. Don't miss that. They're both here. And when we say that some we will look to Jesus because he is lifted up both in exaltation and glory, but also on a cross where God's love and his wrath meet in a powerful way. Oh, don't miss it. A thunderstorm that brings hail and wind also gives life. Look at the way he closes. He says, then we begin to expose that which is in the dark. And we talked about this last week. One of the ways in which we want to see these things play out in the life of our church. We look for the supernatural work of the Spirit, but here we see we expose that which is in the dark. We saw this in chapter 1, that John, the baptizer, exposed sin by saying, look, here's behold, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world, and he exposed the sin in us and in the Lamb that was going to come as Jesus to take it away, and we see it again, and this is judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So that means we ask on a regular question, on a regular basis, questions that will make you squirm. Are you ready? 
What's the thing that you are most terrified of all the people around you finding out about you? What's the thing right now you're hiding? What's the thing right now, if everyone in this room knew about you, you would just be mortified? What's that thing? And you'll see, you love the dark. In fact, you may be a slave to it. And that thing has such power over you because you would never let it go. And so as, on a regular basis, we as a church apply this by asking hard questions like, hey, what's the thing you're getting away with? What's the thing that you should be telling me that you're not? Why? Because when you bring it out into the light, that's when Jesus works with it. That thing that you're so terrified of everyone knowing about you, do you know who knows it? Do you know? And do you know what he has done for it? He has so loved the world that he sent his son to pay for it. So that when finally you realize it has no power or grip and you let it into the light, you don't experience condemnation. That's not why Jesus came. You experience salvation. You experience new birth. You experience new life. The thing that was killing you is now somehow something you boast in the Lord about. Don't miss it. We expose because we know that Jesus is that light. And he brings beautiful and amazing things. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Now, on a practical level, that means we ask questions like, like where do you hide things? Uh, we believe that if there's a place that you keep secrets, uh, that's, that's a place where like, there's destruction and there's, at the very least, there's no growth. Uh, I, I, this is just a, this is an, I'm not quoting the Bible on this one. This is just my own observation, uh, and, and you can disagree with me. There needs to be someone who reads your text messages. This is where we hide things right now. I dare you to let someone read your messengers, your, like, your, your secret, whatever. Wherever you, like if someone is looking over your shoulder and say Snapchat, Facebook, or messengers, your text messages, you will experience a beautiful joy here because that's probably where you're hiding things. But wherever that is for you, just know you hate the light. You hate it because you know it will hurt, but also because you don't know that it will give you new life. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been, what, carried out in God. God's done it. Here's what we'll wrap up. I need you to do this. I need you to uh, turn with me to John chapter 19. And even if you don't turn there, I want you to at least mark it or now we don't know why, but we're pretty sure every time darkness shows up in John, it's kind of bad. What time of day did Nicodemus come to Jesus? At night. It's the very first, first, first one to show us, like, this is the context where Nicodemus came. In the dark. It just make sure you catch that jab Jesus was making. Like, anyone who does stuff in the dark, like, hates the, he, he loves the dark, hates the light. And it's kind of like, <laughs> you, right? And Nicodemus didn't get it. But if you look at verse 38 in John chapter 19, something happens, Right? If we're not born again, we won't even see the kingdom, and therefore we will never see Jesus as king. Something bizarre happens in verse 38. Let's read it together. This is after Jesus being crucified in verse 28, and he dies. And in verse 38, after all these things, that is, Jesus died, and we find, uh, we're introduced to some characters. Joseph of Arimathea, we see him in the other Gospels, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, 
asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took his body. And verse 39, this will mess you up, right? <laughs> Nicodemus also. And just in case you forgot, right? Just in case you were like, who's Nicodemus? I don't remember him. That was like, that was like you know, 16 chapters ago. Don't do math out loud. Nicodemus also. Who's Nicodemus? Who earlier had come to Jesus by what? Night came in the darkness because he loved the darkness. He didn't know who Jesus was. It says he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. I don't know if you know this, but that's how you bury a king. That is how you bury someone who is royalty. Don't miss this, that Nicodemus came to Jesus in the dark, but when he saw him for who he was, when he saw Jesus lifted up, lifted up, hung on a cross on his behalf, what happens? He steps out of the darkness. He sees the kingdom that's coming, and he sees Jesus as the loving and gracious king. Friend, look to him. See him exalted and lifted up. See him exalted and lifted up over your sin. The thing that you're currently enslaved to, the thing that has power over you. Jesus has been exalted over it. He has sat down at the hand of the Father, his work being finished, to staple, nail those, those accusations against us to the cross. He is over it. And just like a bunch of people who are starving in the desert, You think having more options will make you better, it doesn't. If we will but look to him, if we will but look away from the thing that's killing us and look to the perfected son, we'll have life. Just turn. The way we talk about it is you don't have to be amazing for Jesus. You just have to be amazed by Jesus. I'm dying. Poison killing me. Help me. I can't believe that God would do this for me. Look to him. Go to him. And he will grant you mercy. Nicodemus saw Jesus for who he really was and it gave him the burial of a king. Would you see him now as king? Would you look to him and see him as king? King over all things, even the things that want to destroy you and experienced the joy and new and eternal life. Nicodemus saw him, saw him when he was lifted up. May we do the same. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your goodness towards us. Thank you for your mercy towards us. We confess that it is difficult to keep this at the forefront of our minds. We regularly forget. We regularly pursue other things. And like those wandering in the wilderness, we just are looking backward, wishing we could go back to something. And it's killing us. I thank you, God, that you do not leave us to die of the poison coursing through our veins, but instead you have provided a means for us to look away from it and experience joy. For some in this room... Even now they're provoked or feeling despair. Would you even now give them, give, them, uh, give them hope? Even to despair of these things and to wonder if this is true is the beginning of new life. A dead person would not wonder whether or not they are alive. 
So even now, if there's people in this room, they're wondering, like, is there, is there fruit of this? Is, is the wind stirring up things? Am I keeping things secret? Do I have loyalties that I don't want to let go of? Is there something that Jesus demands of me that I just refuse to, to let go of? Even now, would you even let those questions, as they provoke us, would you begin to show us those are encouragements, those are things to show that we are your children, that you would not leave us to die, but to even ask those questions is the beginning of new life. For the rest of us, may we look to the mystery of your finished work on the cross and like starving, dying, and disgruntled, self-centered, and like Nicodemus, maybe self-righteous, but ultimately poisoned. Would you allow us to look to the finished work of Christ on the cross and experience eternal joy? May that be the song of our hearts. May that be the song on our lips and the testimony of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.